reaching that scratch on your back or um, smashing a bug or digging a hole with the claw side, you know, just pounding the ground. And But really, they come in different sizes and shapes for the purpose of driving nails, for uh, applying force to a point on material. Now, I've been guilty out of laziness using a screwdriver as a hammer or a spanner as a hammer because I didn't have a spanner, I didn't have a hammer available, so I just made do with what I had. Um, but a hammer would have worked better. That's the tool for the job. Now, have you ever seen a tool that you had no idea what it was or what it was for? Yeah, you, like Grandpa knows what that thing is, but for me, it's like if it's heavy, it could be a good doorstop. That's about it. Um, knowing the purpose of the tool, the design of the tool, it helps us realize its value and what it's best suited for. So in this chapter, Paul has been explaining how Christ, he has redeemed believers from the curse of the law, how the blessing of Abraham comes to us through faith, not by keeping a law, not by being circumcised, but by what Jesus has done and trust in him. And some of the Galatians were deceived to think that they were, they needed to trust in Jesus, but also be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. And the law was valued, rightly so, by the Jews. It was an expression of God's righteousness that they were to follow. But Paul explained the purpose of law, that it was never intended to save you. It was not, the intention was not that you would be made righteous through trying to keep it or saying, I'm going to do that. That doesn't make you righteous. But salvation is only by grace through faith. It's only through faith in Jesus. So the law is functional. It's a useful tool, but it is it was not designed to save. And so we're going to keep building on that uh, concept as we read this. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that we can come before you now and just rejoice in what you've said to us and what you're saying to each heart. I pray, Lord, you would give us your understanding. You give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you're saying to the church and to each one. I pray, Lord, that if we've we've had uh, some squirrely ideas, you would straighten us. You would make us uh, upright in your sight. That we wouldn't lean on our own understanding. We wouldn't look to ourselves uh, for approval or to others, but to you. Because you are our God and our King and our Lord. We love you and we do adore you in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians chapter 3, starting at verse 15. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men. Though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. Paul starts out by calling them his brethren. This He's speaking to a group of people who were in danger of following a false gospel, one that could not save, one that was based upon what you do to be declared righteous before God. And he talks about a covenant between people, that that's a binding agreement. People make these agreements all the time. For instance, I made an agreement with Optus that for two years they would provide me a service, they would give me this phone, and I would give them so much money. And I signed up for it. 
So the deals between the company and myself, they offered the terms and I agreed to them. Now, it doesn't matter if I, during that time, signed up with Foxtel or I have my home internet provided by Telstra. No one has the authority to change that contract but me or Optus, the people that entered into it. Now, they could change that and I could decide I don't want to be in this contract and pay to get out of it. Um, and so he's saying man's agreements are binding and things that happen outside of the agreement don't have any impact on them. So if man's agreements are legally binding, how much more are the promises of God eternally true? Now, what God has said, it doesn't matter what, what others say or think. He has already spoken. Now, the Judaizers, they were the ones who claimed that you needed to be circumcised in addition to trusting in Christ to keep the law to be saved. They were quoting law to prove their points. And Paul trumps them by going back to the promise that was made before law. A promise that Abraham received through faith, the father of faith in God. In Genesis 12.7 and Genesis 13.5, God made promises to Abraham and to his seed, singular. And Paul points that out here. He says, he didn't give a, he said, to your seeds, he says, to your seed, and that seed is Christ. So he's identifying who that seed is, that that's Jesus himself that was being referred to. The law came 430 years later, but God did not renege. He did not go back on the promise that he had made to Abraham and to his seed, who is Christ. The promise God made to Abraham, it remained in full force, even though the law of Moses came later. And that's what Paul is pointing to. Laws can be reformed and changed, can't they? In Australia, there is a process you can go through to change laws. And we do this because of uh, changing ethics or morality or technology or in light of uh, uh, an event, a significant event that can lead to laws being changed. God doesn't change, and the law that he delivered to Moses over the years, it was subjected to 1,500 years of interpretation and tradition, and there were things added on and added on to this law by various groups. But God never went back on his promise to Abraham. That still remained true. He didn't make the promise to Abraham conditional on his obedience, like, if you do this, I will do that. No, he made this promise to him. I'm going to do this. And Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. God swore by himself. And so it was. it's going to stand. Justification by faith it's an eternal inheritance. It's a gift of God by promise, not through law. We know very well that people, however well-intentioned, do not always keep their promises. Have you guys learned that yet? They, they don't always keep those promises. Um, like, I might promise to help you pour concrete tomorrow, but there's things that could happen. I could become sick. I could get into a car wreck on the way. Um, I could forget and not even show up. There's things that could keep me from keeping my word. The road's closed down. The truck doesn't make it. So what we plan doesn't happen. But God, in contrast to men, he always keeps his promises. He's not fickle what he said he will do. He will follow through. We can trust him. If someone doesn't keep their agreement that we make among one another, you could take them to court. You could bring the force of law upon that. Say, this law, it's... It, it requires you to fulfill your obligation, your responsibility. But God is the righteous judge of all. 
and in the court of heaven, only righteousness prevails. So there's no mistakes. Like, courts can make mistakes. Uh, a law can be written, and they go, well, that was not a great law. There were, there were unintended consequences of that law. That, now we need to adapt it or change it. But God made this eternal promise. It was a promise he made. So that's what Paul is pointing out. That no man can annul or change the promise God has made. And his covenant remains in full force regardless of the law. So the law has no impact on that promise God made to Abraham. The promise that we've entered into through Jesus, his seed. Verse 19. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. If people weren't saved by keeping the law, what purpose did it serve? So Paul is beginning to tease out some of the common uh, arguments against this position. And he says it was a stopgap measure to govern the people of God between Moses and the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. God knew that people would sin. God knew that people needed clear guidelines to govern them, to direct them. Without boundaries, they would sin without even knowing it. They would bring wrath and judgment upon themselves. And he wanted to dwell among them. He wanted to keep them from sin that was destructive to them and that would keep them from fellowship with him. Jesus said in Matthew 5.17, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. To fulfill means to complete. It means to finish or end. It's like if you're building a house and usually you get the structure built first and then you finish with the fit out inside. You'll put down, you'll paint, get the carpet, and you'll put the skirting on. That seems to be one of the last things. And then it's done. There's no more to add to that. The, the work is finished. Jesus did not come to destroy the law of the prophets because they still serve a good functional purpose to, to reckon, as we're going to talk about, to cause a sinner to recognize their sin, their need for forgiveness. Also, there's a lot of wisdom and, and uh, revelation still in the law and the prophets for us today. So God's, Jesus didn't come to say, okay, all those are invalid. All of those are useless. All of those have no value. That's not what Jesus did. He completed it. He finished it. He fulfilled it. Jesus fulfilled law and prophecies during his lifetime on earth. When God met with Moses on Sinai, Paul says that the law was appointed to by angels to Moses, who in turn passed them to the people. So that's there was this transaction that happened on Sinai, where God involved angels to deliver the law to Moses, who in turn delivered it to the people. We have this all the time, like uh, if I'm, so mediating, something in the middle. If I'm at the shops and I want to talk to Laura and she's at home, I can call her or text her. The phone acts as a bit of a mediator for me to communicate one to another. God's promise to Abraham, his fulfillment through Jesus, was by God himself. It wasn't through angels, it was God coming to earth and speaking with us directly. So God spoke to Abraham directly. There was no angel that he spoke through. And Jesus, when he came, it was direct revelation of God 
from God to us. There was no, there were no angels that were in the middle. So he's saying this covenant through Christ is a better covenant. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life himself, and he came to us. There's a couple of times I've house sat. Uh, both really had a lot of things happen. I don't know if this always happens to you, but if you've ever house sat, it's like things happen. They go wrong. Um, and, and when I did, the places where I did house sit for, I wasn't familiar with how the house ran, the garden, the, the, pe- the pets. There were always pets involved. Um, and I was always provided a list of the necessary chores and duties, like trash day is this day, that's when the rubbish needs to go out, and how long and how often the plants should be watered. Uh, here's the vet's number for the dog, because you're probably going to have to call it, and that was a bit disconcerting. Um, you know, when to feed the bird, how to uh, service the spa or the hot tub. Now, if the owner of the house was present, that list would be totally unnecessary, right? Because the owner's there. I don't have to refer to the list and go, oh, wait, this is the time we have to water. He's like, ah, we'll do that tomorrow. Now, is the list a good representation of the regular routine of the house? Sure. And whether the owner was away or home, it was still true. But I never referred to the list once the owner was back. I'd say, all right, what do we have to do to... Make sure this house is in good shape. How often to mow the lawn? Well, they're right there. You can just ask them. So the the owner being there ushered a change to that list. Obeying a list wasn't the point. Because there were present, my shift, my 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 focus shifted on trying to follow the list to talking to and communicating with the owner, listening to what they said and obeying them. And this is similar to what Jesus has done when he came and he has sent his spirit to fill us. The law is still perfectly true. It's valid. It's a representation of his righteousness, but we have him now. And so, and being righteous, Jesus will always lead us to live righteously. When you receive a letter from your local MP in the mail, sometimes the signature is printed in different color. You wonder why they they do that? Well, it looks more personal if they physically signed it themselves. Are you like me that when you get one, you actually hold it up to the light or you examine it carefully? Like, did this person really, you know, sign their name a thousand times? By the time I've signed my name five times in a row, it's starting to look a little different. But I'm like, did they really sit down and do this? Uh, Usually it's just blue ink. It's not. But it seems more personal, right? A handwritten note is much more personal than an email or a text. But there's nothing more personal than meeting in person. That's the most personal thing. Can you imagine? You hear a knock on the door, you're like, wow, I don't want to buy anything. You open up, and there's your local member. Like, whoa, what's going on? Like, to whom do I uh, owe this privilege? Am I in trouble God wasn't content just to speak to Abraham, just to give his law through angels and Moses, but he came to us in the person of Jesus. Not just to share his wisdom or his truth, but to heal, to feed people, to call disciples, to demonstrate God's love by his death on the cross, his power through his resurrection from the dead. It would be admirable 
for an MP to show up at your door and to shake your hand and to, to outline their policies with you, to have a cup of tea, but infinitely more personal that Jesus, he not only came to us, but he shed his blood for us. He gave his life so we could be with him forever. Praise God for that. Galatians 3.21. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Since the law didn't promise righteousness and attempts to keep it didn't save anyone, what's the point? Was the law contrary to the promise that God had made? No, he says, certainly not. He's very emphatic here. God made promises and gave the law, but for different purposes. The law did not offer assurance of eternal life to those who tried to keep it. And if eternal life came by the law, then the law could make people righteous and the sacrifice of Christ was completely unnecessary. Instead of giving righteousness or life, the law could only condemn you. It could just condemn you to death. And that's the irony of the thing. The people used the law to show how righteous they were. They used the law to show how pious and devoted they were to God. They used the law for exactly the opposite thing that God had intended it for. To show that the law was given because they're sinners. To expose their sin to show their need for repentance. So they use the very thing that God had given to show their need for repentance, to show how holy and pious they were. I had a coworker. He was suspended a week without pay because uh, he was a second-year apprentice, and they're like, you know, if, if we're going to keep this guy on, he really needs to step up. He needs to show up on time. His attitude needs to improve. He, he needs to really make some efforts, or else... He's going to be out of a job. So the superintendent pulled him aside and said, you really need to, this is hopefully a wake-up call. You need to make some changes in the way you're working. Interestingly, he saw it as a reward, and he was really excited about planning this unexpected holiday he had been given. He's like, I'm going to go here, I'm going to go there. It's going to be great. You know, he, It did not get through to him. He did not stay long with the company after that. Um, And God's people, they misunderstood the purpose of the law, which was to restrain sin, to convey what pleased God because they were sinners. Like they needed the law because they were sinners, not to just show how righteous they were. The quote of Luther in the Enduring Word Commentary, he talks about the value of the law. He says, People foolish but wise in their own conceits jump to the conclusion, if the law does not justify, it's good for nothing. How about that? Because money does not justify, would you say that money is good for nothing? Because the eyes do not justify, would you have them taken out? Because the law does not justify it, does not follow that the law is without value. And that's the mistake that we can make not being under the law anymore, is to say the law is relegated to something completely outdated and unnecessary and and really old. 
not realize that it still has a functional value today. There's many things that we do value that don't give us salvation or sanctification. Paul says, The law confines all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. That's the purpose. It confines all over sin. It stops everyone's mouth from justifying themselves and saying, I am righteous. And you go, well, have you always honored your father and mother? Have you ever taken the name of the Lord in vain? Have you ever stolen something? Have you ever coveted something that wasn't your own? Have you ever lusted after somebody? And you're like, well, no, I'm, I'm guilty of those things. Well, then you're not righteous before God. The lens is a power, the, the law is a powerful lens to illustrate our need for a savior. It shines a light on our failings. It puts us under the microscope of God's righteous justice and reveals our guilt and presents this hopeless picture of us measuring up to God's goodness. Because the Bible says that most men will proclaim their own goodness. But who, what man can we, what faithful man could be found? If you want to try to keep the law, have you read the law? Just for instance, there was, there was a man who was gathering sticks on the Sabbath day. What was the penalty for that? Death. There were two people that were fighting and one of them cursed the other. They pulled him aside to seek the Lord and said, what, what should be done? He should surely die. Death for cursing. One time. And that's like, whoa! That is pretty, that seems extremely harsh. But we don't realize how wicked sin is and how awful it is. Our only hope for justification is through faith in Jesus. That's a free gift we receive by trusting in Christ according to his promise. Not because we tried to keep the law or we claimed something. We've all broken the law whether it was enforced or not. And God will enforce the death penalty on all lawbreakers for eternity. And he's looking at the heart. He's not just looking at what you're doing. He's, he's seeing what you're thinking and how you're responding to others. If you're loving them like he does. And so I find myself completely nailed by the law at every turn. Jesus trumped law, didn't he? When he said in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We can have everlasting life through faith in Christ, not because we've kept the law. Verse 23, But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which we afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. In addition to keeping his people from sin, Paul says that the law was given by God to keep us under guard, to keep his people under protective custody. Keeping the law kept the people from harming themselves from sin. It kept people from doing damage to one another, and it kept those outside wicked influences of the nations around them to permeate and to affect them because they would be drawn aside to sin. And sin's always destructive to individuals, and to society. After God outlined 
uh, many abominable sexual sins commonly practiced. And the reason why he, he, he spoke against them is because it was common to do these things. In Leviticus 18, 24 and 25, he says, Do not defile yourself with any of these things, for by all these the nations are defiled which I am casting out before you. For the land is defiled. Therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. It's not a pretty picture. So sexual perversion, it brought people under God's wrath, under his judgment, and God warned people from embracing these practices themselves to their own destruction. He's saying as as the land has vomited out the inhabitants before you, you are not, you're not uh, immune from such a thing happening to you as well, should you go in their ways. Those who kept the law, they were protected from sins that other people were given over to. And Paul experienced personally what it was like to be in protective custody. Remember, they were all trying to kill him when he gave his uh, speech, well, when he just walked into the temple. They said, oh, men of Israel, look, this man, he's causing trouble. And people tried to to beat him to death. But then the Romans are like, what's going on? All right, for his own safety, let's pull him out of the mob and we will keep him in custody. And so it wasn't, it was protecting Paul from the mob. God gave his laws to his people to protect them from the sins that were prevalent in the society. And so it would guard them. It would protect them, not just from themselves, but from the outside influences coming in and doing his people harm. In the previous chapter, Paul explained he'd been crucified with Christ. It was no longer he who lived, but Christ in him by faith. And under these new conditions, the law no longer governed him. He wasn't under that authority anymore because the righteous Christ lived in him. It was a far higher plane than that of the Mosaic law. And in verse 24, Paul, he presents now a new illustration to describe the purpose of law, that of a strict tutor, schoolmaster, or guardian. Kind of like uh, in in remote outback towns, you have a governess who, who's 24 hours with the kids and and or takes them to school, teaches them, has authority over them while their folks are away. The Greek word for tutor is pedagogos, and it was common for children in well-to-do households to have a slave who 24-7 was devoted to watching out for them. They would clothe them, they would feed them, bathe them, they would take them to school, they would keep them out of mischief. That slave was dedicated to rearing this child while their senator dad was doing whatever, or while their mother was away. So each child would have a slave that was their guardian. And they, they would raise them strictly. Their, their job was to train them and to protect them and to help them grow up into a, an honest member of Roman society. Do you think that a child raised by a governess for six, eight years would be impacted for the rest of their lives by that time? Sure, definitely. And so it's very fitting that someone raised under the law would be deeply impacted by the lessons they learned. And I started thinking about this, and I said, you know, even people that we didn't agree with, even people that we know were a bit harsh, they did impact us in a way. There's lessons that we learn from them or that we've held on 
even from that training, that's made an impact upon us in some way. We think about what they used to say and what they used to do, and that still can rattle around in our minds. So that the discipline of that strict guardian, it did provide life lessons. Paul affirmed that we can learn from law, but we don't live under it anymore. Our relationship to the law has totally changed. As a six-year-old with that governess who would wash you and uh, take you to school and train you, there was a period where finally that relationship changed and you became an adult. You became, uh, so your relationship to that person changed. Kind of like, I remember my relationship with my parents really changing when I moved out of the house. And so I was able to be kind of a, a friend with my parents rather than just uh, their son. The law no longer, as Christians, it no longer has authority over us because we're dead to it. As Paul said in Galatians 2.19, For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. For the sake of time, it's it's unfair. I mean, it's not unfortunate, it is what it is, but uh, Galatians, as we've seen, has been building to this point. I really encourage you guys to read through the whole book of Galatians to see the flow of how it goes, and we can do that week to week, but I find myself having to refer back to just things a chapter ago, it seems like a year ago that we talked about, where it's building upon those points. So being dead to the law, and the law being dead to you, it has no power over a dead person, and in the same way, the law has no power or authority over us because we're in Christ. If we're not in Christ, different situation. But now that we have Christ and we're in Christ and he's in us, we now are living through him. Being dead to the law does not mean we are lawless, and that was one of the concerns of these early uh, Jewish Christians. Like, whoa, hold on. All these things that were wrong, sin, 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 they're not now not sin, but that can't be right because God's word is true. Well, the Holy Spirit indwells us and guides us into all truth. The law says, do not murder. Jesus said we should love one another as he loves us. Now, you have to agree that not killing someone and loving them are two totally different things. So you know what, I really want to kill that guy, but I'm not. I'm going to keep the law. Congratulations. Look how good you are. You didn't kill someone today. But did you love them sacrificially like God loves you? Totally different. So Jesus, and you look at his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, He says, the law says, but I say to you. The law says, but I say to you. And every time he goes stronger because he's looking at hearts. So those who think that without law we'd be lawless, they don't understand the purpose of the law and the power of God to empower us to live righteously. That's why Jesus, that's a reason why he's come, to indwell us and to empower us to live in the way that pleases him. Because we couldn't, No matter how hard we tried under law, it was impossible. We were only condemned, but he has saved. In three of the Gospels, after calling Levi the tax collector, Jesus went to his house, and he has this great big feast. I mean, he could afford it. He was a wealthy man, likely had profited uh, from 
dirty dealings with, uh, as many of the tax collectors did. But he chose to follow Christ. He's having this great feast at his house. All his buddies are there, tax collectors. There's also scribes and Pharisees there. And the scribes and Pharisees, they're complaining. Something they do often is they complain to the disciples about Jesus, and they complain to Jesus about the disciples, and they do this here. Uh, they're like, hey, Jesus is eating with sinners. Can't believe that. He would defile himself by being around sinners and eating with them. That was culturally just totally taboo, what Jesus was doing. But Jesus, he answered them in Luke 5, 31 and 32. Jesus answered and said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And then he told a parable to them. And he said, if you're trying to patch a hole in your old clothes, you need to use an old piece of fabric, something that's pre-shrunk. Because if you were to put a new piece of fabric on that old clothes, it would shrink and then make the hole worse. It would pull away. And then he said, if you're making wine, you need to put new wine in new wine bottles. If you try to put new wine where there's going to be some expansion in an old wineskin, well, it's going to burst and you're going to lose both the wine and the wineskin. But you need to keep old wine in old bottles, new wine in new bottles. Luke 5, 38 and 39. But new wine must be put into new wineskins and both are preserved. And this is the point. And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new, for he says the old is better. There's something in us that's very reluctant to change, even changing our own views about things. And so God had given the law for a purpose. The old covenant, it had a purpose, and it was a good covenant. But God had brought a better covenant on better promises through Jesus Christ, fulfilled by him. And so he was saying, I'm giving you this new thing. I'm doing a new thing. You think it's sinful for me to eat with these people. He didn't point, at this point, he's not saying, well, you know, you're the one who's judging, and you will be judged by that standard. He says that in another place. But instead of measuring your righteousness, as they uh, wrongly did by keeping the law of Moses, Jesus ushered a new way of justification by faith apart from the law, just like Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. They still felt like the old was better. Well, I still like that, you know keeping our traditions and keeping these laws. That's where it's at. But Jesus was saying, no one immediately desires. We can grow to desire the new thing that God has. I imagine when we read through this book of Galatians, it can rattle us. It can rattle some of the ways that we've been thinking that aren't biblical. Ways that we have judged others that are not scriptural. And it's a good thing when we're humble and teachable to what God's word says. We say, you know what, Lord? I believe this is true, that you have made a new way through faith alone. And, and I confess that I have looked to my own efforts and I felt pretty good about myself because I was comparing myself with others and felt pretty righteous in my own eyes. I was self-righteous. See, the new is better. Jesus has come. He has spoken. He has lived He's died, he's risen from the dead, and through him we can have new life. The promise of the Holy Spirit by faith. So I love that God's patient with us 
to, to get our, not only just get our heads around something, but for us to desire a changed heart towards others and Him. Galatians 3, 26. For all, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The Jews would have affirmed that attempts to keep the law of Moses did not make you an Israelite. Right? You could try to keep the law, but that doesn't make you who you're not. They thought they were children of Abraham, but Jesus was saying those who have faith in God, those are the true children of Abraham. Sons of God through faith in Christ. In the next chapter, Paul's going to explain that because we are children of God, we've received the Holy Spirit. But why don't we turn to Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 14. Romans 8, starting in verse 14. Probably reading the whole chapter would be best, but this is what we have for now. But if you... If it stirs your interest, go ahead and read that more later. Romans 8, verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. We're no longer as children of God through faith in Jesus in bondage to curses of the law, to sin or under wrath because we have been justified by faith in Christ. We've been made righteous through believing in him. And that means that all of our sins have been washed away completely without memory And we have been declared righteous, completely holy and blameless before God, just as if it's Jesus and his righteousness, because it is his righteousness we put on through faith. We've been redeemed from the curse for the blessing of Abraham. God promised Abraham many descendants, and God's promised the spirit of adoption to be sons of God and joint heirs with Christ. Can you imagine that God... You see some favoritism throughout Scripture, like Jacob, right? He His firstborn of Rachel. He's like, oh, coat of many colors for Joseph. And all the other brothers kind of envy them. And then remember Joseph. When all of his brothers come, he gave Benjamin five times the food as everybody else, right? So they, they kind of were picking their favorites. But God, he's like, you are a joint heir with Christ. Everything that he receives of the kingdom of God, it's yours too. Because you're one in him. We're like, wow, that's that's phenomenal. And you can't buy that. You can't earn that. That's by God's grace. And he says in Galatians 3, 27, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. This isn't speaking of water baptism, which is a symbolic ordinance to be immersed in water, identifying with the death of Christ and resurrection. 
But it's really when we're born again and we're baptized in the Holy Spirit through faith. When we are regenerated and the Holy Spirit comes into us in his fullness. And this illustrates the total unity between Christ and those he has saved. That we are one. Even as Jesus is one with the Father, we're one with him. We're not, be, we haven't become God, but we have been made one as far as adopted into his family. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says something really interesting. It says, this union with him means being clothed with Christ. In the Roman society, when a youth came of age, he was given a special toga, which admitted him to the full rights of the family and state and indicated he was a grown-up son. So the Galatian believers had laid aside the old garments of the law and had put on Christ's robe of righteousness, which grants full acceptance before God. There were apparently six different kinds of togas that you would wear, or so, from the sites that I saw. By looking at them, you could tell if the person was an adult, if they were a politician, if they were in mourning, or victorious. You wore this toga, and it was only for Roman citizens, and it showed that you had allegiance to Rome, and that you were a citizen. Only citizens could wear these togas. And you would be given one, a different one, when you became an adult. So now you have the full rights of an adult within the empire. The clothing that you wore said something about you. It's really not like that today. Um, at least in my experience, in my cultures that I've experienced. Um, but once you've grown out of those clothes in your youth, you don't go back. Like Abel at his school, he's got, uh, you know, primary has a particular uniform. And when you get to, uh, you know, high school, they have a thing they wear. And then when you're a, a year 11 or year 12, you have even more differences in your uniform. You don't go back to wearing the old one. It's like you've graduated from that. You've moved on from that. You get to wear the, you know, you've kind of arrived to a new station. And it's something that you embrace. You're glad to do. And so he's like, guys, you've, you've arrived to a new station as citizens of heaven as children of God and those old garments of the law they've now been traded for the robe of righteousness you're already righteous in Christ you've put on Christ Christ lives in you he's living through you so no more were you to conform to an external law to try to be righteous but Jesus has made you righteous because you believe in him How awesome is that? So his words here swell to a crescendo. He says, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave or free, male or female. The redeemed are all one in Jesus and he in us. Because of this relationship with God, we're one with him and with each other in the body of Christ, the church. And he affirms, we all have equal standing before God and are his children by faith in that Greek and Roman culture, if you were a slave, you did not have the status that if you were a citizen, totally different, what you what was afforded you as a citizen. And it's by faith we stand. And that's not to say that there's no difference as far as roles in society or like husbands and wives in the home or that slaves no longer needed to submit to their masters uh, or that children didn't need to honor or obey their parents anymore. Of course not. There's a lot in the New Testament that's outlining, well, this is godly behavior, and this is how we should live. These are the roles. Uh, and I think Stott says it very well. He says, when we say that Christ has abolished these distinctions, we do not mean they do not exist, 
but that they no longer create any barriers to fellowship. In Christ, I am united to all the redeemed people of God, past, present, and future. In Christ, I discover my identity. The Jewish folks had found a lot of identity in the things they did. And we do that too. We, we can find our identity in our work or our activities or our ethnicity or our family or what we've accomplished or, you know, do we have any people part of the Mensa club? You know, you're, you're a smart person and you hang with other smart people. Um, or you're kind of the opposite. You know, I, I just like barbecue and this is, this is kind of who I am. Right? This is important to me. So we can try to find identity in all sorts of different activities and groups and relationships. I think a lot of people are searching for identity. They're bouncing around trying to find where they fit, where they belong, where they can be accepted. And they can bounce from activity to activity or church to church. Maybe they're looking for people who align perfectly with their views and practice and theology, and they can feel left out and disillusioned, perhaps because they're seeking identity in the wrong thing, because our identity is in Christ. It's He who unites us. So having put on Christ, we find our basic identity, our need to be accepted and belong and loved in Jesus, who has given Himself for us. So our basic identity is no longer in in being Italian or being manly or being strong or being a dual citizen or your career. It's in Christ that we are one. He has accepted us. And it's not about what we can boast of ourselves, but who has redeemed us. Jesus has done that. What an inheritance God has given us. How wonderful it is to be adopted. I I was born to parents um, and and was raised with them, and I know many people who have been adopted. And what a picture of acceptance and love and provision in that it's a beautiful, beautiful picture that we see God, he did that. He's done that, and he's doing that, and he's seeking to continue that, reaching out to people who are lost, forsaken, and alone. He says, you be part of my family and be part of me. And he wants to see people saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And we have been chosen by him, not because we're righteous, not because we've kept the law, but because he loves us and he's good. So let's praise God. I think about what's application here. Let's praise God for what he's done. Let's praise him for blessing us so much. In Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, just listen to this. And it goes on. It doesn't stop here. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the Beloved. Quite often, to be accepted means you have to earn it. You've got to show your loyalty. You need to show, you have to have the numbers. To be accepted into some universities, you've got to have the numbers. You've got to have the marks. And if you don't have them, you're not accepted. But we could never earn this, what God has chosen us for and redeemed us for.
by his grace, that we would be seen without blame, righteous before him, that we could be clothed in his righteousness and walk righteously through the Holy Spirit who lives in us, not looking to ourselves or others for a standard of godliness, but to him face-to-face as a man speaks to his friend. Praise the Lord for all he's done. Let's thank him. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our Savior. And thank you, Father, for choosing us, for giving us an opportunity to come to you in faith and to be washed clean of our sins. Thank you for the law, Lord, and the purpose of it to keep us from sin, to show us our need for a Savior and for the discipline that you have shown us through your word. We pray, Lord, that we would Use the law lawfully for the purpose for which it was intended, not to put others under a yoke or a burden, not to increase our guilt or shame, but to use it for what you've desired. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to us. And I pray that we'd continue to be receptive to your word as you speak and minister. Thank you that you've redeemed us from the curse and you've redeemed us for the promise of Abraham. Thank you for fulfilling your word by sending Jesus. And may we truly celebrate that every day in Jesus' name. Amen.